0: Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. Smithsonian Magazine, The New York Times, The Harvard Gazette, Time Magazine, The Kansas City Star, The Wall Street Journal, and audiophilemagazine.com. And we're going to start off today's readings with an article from Time Magazine and its time.com website. The title is The New Ways Teachers Are Talking About Martin Luther King Jr. It was written by Olivia Waxman and was published January 12, 2023 at 3.36 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. At the beginning of this school year, a Philadelphia student asked a question that briefly took her teacher's breath away. Are you more Malcolm or are you more Martin? Keziah Ridgeway, 37, who teaches African American history, a required class in the city, said the student added that Martin Luther King Jr. was more peaceful and that Malcolm X was more violent. Richway replied, Martin Luther King believed in violence. Then she says her students looked at her as if they didn't know what she was talking about. He used violence to his advantage, she explained. He knew that his ideas and what he was asking for would elicit violence. She told them that King knew that organizing a march of civil rights activists would spark a violent backlash that would make white people so uncomfortable and get so much media attention. White people would realize this is a terrible thing that we're doing. Using water hoses, using dogs on people who are peacefully protesting. These scenes would make America reflect and make changes in the right direction. This lesson is one example of the ways that some teachers have taken a more nuanced approach to teaching about King, the most famous American civil rights leader. Since Martin Luther King Day became a federal holiday in 1983, the civil rights activist has become a fixture in classrooms. But how he's taught has largely remained unchanged over the last 40 years, according to Legarrett King, director of the Center for K-12 Black History and Racial Literacy Education at the University of Buffalo. State standards for history usually frame the civil rights leader as the embodiment of the civil rights movement, with his crowning achievements being the 1963 March on Washington and the I Have a Dream speech, along with his letter from a Birmingham jail penned after leading a demonstration against the city's orders. Over the last two years, there's been a heightened awareness of how black history is taught. In the last year, Education Week reports that 17 states have passed laws or taken other steps to limit how the history of racism is taught in K-12 schools or ban critical race theory, which is not taught in K-12 schools. Despite this climate, King is still considered a safe person to teach, according to King, the University of Buffalo scholar. Teachers still teach him as a moderate and passive, he says. Overall, society hasn't caught up to understand King's nuances, particularly his thoughts around war and thoughts around poverty. New technology is also bringing Martin Luther King's words to life in new ways. A virtual reality experience produced by Time Studios and Meta relates the I Have a Dream speech to modern-day issues like voting rights, One chilling experience juxtaposes King's words on police brutality with an interactive that puts users in the position of being a black person at a traffic stop. Teachers are also trying to make King relevant to their students by linking him to their local communities whenever possible. Every year around Election Day, Anna O'Brien, 55, a middle school teacher in Fort Mill, South Carolina, outside Charlotte, plays a speech on voting rights that King delivered in the state in 1966. Emmett Glenn, 52, a high school teacher in the Baton Rouge, Louisiana area, explains how King researched the city's successful bus boycott, which took place almost three years before the one King led in Montgomery, Alabama. Even when it comes to students of younger ages, teachers aren't shying away from difficult conversations about the history of racism in America. They've heard the words white supremacy. They've talked about this before. Turquoise Lejeune Parker, 35, an elementary school teacher in Durham, North Carolina, says of her students. In Colleen, Texas, Lapernee Key, 33, recalls how last year, as part of a day devoted to teaching King during Black History Month in February, she explained what racism is to her second grade classroom by describing white people in King's lifetime as bullies. She taught King's resilience by saying he gets picked on, but at the end of the day, he still accomplished something, meaning that his activism led to landmark laws like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Parker in Durham explains to her elementary school students that when white people hail King as a promoter of nonviolence, it's often a loaded term. Kids and adults think that when Dr. King said nonviolence, he meant that he was going to be submissive to whatever white folks thought needed to happen. Like he wasn't going to push back on anything. He was just going to accept whatever was given to him. Parker says it's important to teach about Martin Luther King all year round and laments that discussions about him in many classrooms mostly happen around Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend. Sometimes I really don't want to even talk about Dr. King on this holiday, lamenting that it's become a time when white people frequently quote King because they want to be seen as inclusive or anti-racist. As a result, many teachers aim to go beyond the King quotes that circulate on social media. Ridgway says the biggest takeaway about the civil rights activist that she wants students to learn from her class is that what is pushed out to the mainstream is only half of who he was. That was a reading of the article, The New Ways Teachers Are Talking About Martin Luther King Jr. It was written by Olivia Waxman. It was published January twelfth, 2023 at 3.36 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at the Time Magazine's time.com website. The next reading in today's program is from the Kansas City Star newspaper. The title is, Jackson County Appoints First African-American Presiding Judge. It was written by Andrea Click and was published January 13, 2023. Jackson County Circuit Court announced Judge Jalila Otto, capital J-A-L-I-L-A-H, capital O-T-T-O, as the court's newest presiding judge and the first African-American to take on the role in the court's nearly 200-year history. Otto is also the fourth woman to serve as presiding judge. Otto was elected by her colleagues in December 2021 to the position, which oversees the budget and other administrative functions at the 16th Circuit Judicial Court. She began her two-year term at the start of the new year and served as presiding judge-elected in 2022. In a news release, Jackson County Executive Frank White Jr. said he looks forward to working with Otto and the courts to create a more equitable future within the county. I am thrilled to congratulate Presiding Judge Jelilah Otto to her historic appointment, White said, to which she brings extensive knowledge, character, and integrity that will ensure effective administration of the court and fair treatment of those seeking justice. Governor Jay Nixon appointed Otto as an associate circuit judge in 2014 and Governor Eric Greitens appointed her as circuit judge in 2017. She also served as a federal and state prosecutor. When John Gray retired in 2007 after serving 20 years as a circuit court judge, he told the Star the black community received unfair treatment in the handling of court cases, including charges, quality of defense, and length of sentences. Representation matters, White said of Otto's appointment, and today, young black girls across our community will see that they too can break the glass ceiling in whatever they strive to do. Edith Messina was the first female to serve a two-year term as a presiding judge from 1998 to 2000. Marco Rodon was the first person of color to serve as a presiding judge. Also on Monday, Candace Alcaraz was sworn in as Wyandotte County's first black female judge. That was a reading of the article, Jackson County Appoints First African American Presiding Judge. It was written by Andrea Click and appeared January 13, 2023, in the Kansas City Star newspaper. The next reading on today's African American Hour is about an entertainer that spent some of his childhood in the Kansas City area. The title is Don Cheadle, From Age 10 He Could Hold an Audience. This was published in the Wall Street Journal on Friday, December 30th, 2022, and was written by Mark Myers. My initial exposure to acting began at home in Kansas City, Missouri. I came from a very funny, loving family where humor and imagination were prized and encouraged. My parents didn't tell me to sit down and be quiet or sit up straight. We enjoyed being playful with one another and my curiosity about acting only grew as I spent more time watching shows on TV. The next big step took place in elementary school in Denver when I was 10. I played Templeton the Rat in Charlotte's Web. On stage, facing the audience in the dark, I realized I could control their reaction by dialing my performance up or down, as if conducting an orchestra. Some kids are military brats. My sister and I are education brats. My father, Donald, was pursuing a master's and Ph.D. in clinical psychology, and my mother, Betty, was earning a degree in education. They moved us where scholarships, grants, and financial assistance were available. After I completed first grade in Kansas City, my parents moved with me and my older sister, Cindy, to Lincoln, Nebraska. I was in second grade there, third grade in Denver, fourth grade and part of fifth grade in Kansas City, and then the rest of fifth grade and beyond in Denver. By then, our younger brother Colin had arrived. Serial relocations forced me to make new friends and figure out my footing. Emotionally, it was tricky for sure. We had gone from a predominantly black neighborhood in KC to the suburbs of Denver. Each summer, though, we'd return to Kansas City. We were an open family that discussed anything and everything that came up. Despite his research and workload, my dad was very much engaged with us. We were very close. My mother and I were close, too. She was a natural educator and taught life skills to young kids. She was tough but understanding and quick-witted, which is where my sense of humor probably comes from. When I was in fifth grade, my teacher, Barbara Outhouse, introduced us to the arts, including acting and singing. It was the first time I sang in choir outside of our church, Her excitement was infectious. For Charlotte's Web, I remember looking at my lines and thinking, what does a rat prefer? What would a rat eat first, popcorn or a hot dog? I just instinctively wondered about such things to develop the role. In elementary school, I also began playing the alto saxophone. I listened to my parents' jazz records and loved how cool the instrument looked with its curved neck and all those pearl buttons. In high school, I took theater class and had an excellent teacher, Kathy Davis, who introduced me to the acting methods of Stanislavski and Uta Hagen. After high school, I attended California Institute of the Arts and majored in theater. While at Cal Arts in the early '80s, my classmates and I went to an open call for the TV series Fame. My sweet mate Jesse Barrego had booked the gig, but the producers who wanted Jesse couldn't find him after. He only left a general number at CalArts and a Polaroid photo. A couple of days later, friends saw him on campus and told him his picture was on the news, that the fame producers were looking for him. He needed an agent to sign him and make his deal, so I went with Jesse and another friend of ours to meet one, Kay Lieberman. When we showed up, Kay said she wanted to represent all three of us. A year later, when I was a junior at Cal Arts, she sent me to audition for a part as a worker at a fast food joint called Juicy Burgers. I landed the role, my first, in the movie Moving Violations. Today, my wife, Bridget, capital B-R-I-D-G-I-D, and I live in Los Angeles. We bought the property in 1999 because it was close to our kids' school and a 10-minute walk to the beach. But we needed a larger home, Bridget was an interior designer with offices in L.A. and Hawaii. Together we sketched the house we wanted and where every element should be and are building it nearby. Looking back, I realize now that my father and I shared a passion for psychology, but we never compared notes. He viewed psychology as a way to better understand human behavior. I look at human behavior as a way to establish a character's motivations, voice, and movement. That was a reading of the article, Don Cheadle. From age 10, he could hold an audience. This article appeared December 30th, 2022, in the Wall Street Journal. The next reading on today's African American Hour is about the man that came up with the concept of recognizing black history in the month of February. This is from the Harvard Gazette and its news.harvard.edu website. And the title of the article is celebrating the founder of Black History Month. In a new book, Education School's Jarvis Givens tracks influence of pioneering scholar who fought to preserve record of African-American life. This was written by Liz Minio and was published February 1, 2022. In his book, Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching, Jarvis R. Givens, assistant professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and the Suzanne Young Murray Assistant Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, tells the little-known story of Woodson, a groundbreaking historian and the founder of Black History Month. The Gazette spoke with Givens about Woodson, who popularized Black history and joined efforts with a legion of African-American teachers during the Jim Crow era to celebrate the contributions of Black people in the nation's history. This interview was edited for clarity and length. Q&A with Jarvis R. Givens Gazette Carter G. Woodson is known as the father of black history. How did his life inform his development as a teacher, thinker, and scholar? Givens It's always important to start with the fact that Carter G. Woodson was both the child and the student of formerly enslaved people before we emphasize that in 1912, he became the second black person to receive a Ph.D. from Harvard. He was born in 1875 and grew up working on his family's farm. His first teachers were his formerly enslaved uncles who taught him in a one-room schoolhouse in Buckingham County, Virginia. He worked in the coal mines before he started high school at the age of 20 and worked alongside formerly enslaved men and Civil War veterans who were illiterate, men who relied on Woodson to read to them in the evenings. It was in those experiences that Woodson came to learn that black people carried important knowledge from their lived experiences that needed to be taken seriously and preserved. In 1915, he created the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History while he worked as a teacher during Jim Crow and then went on to become the man that people referred to as the father of black history. As an educator and institution builder, Woodson popularized black history and celebrated the contributions of black people in American history. And as a scholar, his books indicted the American school system for the various forms of violence it inflicted upon black people. Gazette. What do Woodson's efforts represent in the history of black education in the United States? Givens. Woodson embodies a countervailing educational tradition that black people sustained. It is a tradition that is intimately tied to the fugitive literacy practices of enslaved people who defied anti-literacy laws, who criminalized black education, laws imposed by the white supremacist establishment determined to control and surveil them. These laws made it illegal for black people, free and enslaved, to be taught to read and write. The first anti-literacy law was instituted in South Carolina in 1740, and it was in response to the Stono Slave Rebellion in 1739, where colonial legislators linked black literacy to black revolt. Anti-literacy laws would proliferate in southern states during the antebellum period. Virginia, where Woodson was born, passed an anti-literacy law in 1819. I'm saying all this to emphasize the long history of ongoing suppression and surveillance of black education and black teachers but also to make clear that despite the efforts to prevent black people from having access to education, we find stories across the South of black people stealing away at night to learn to read and write. The most famous among these narratives is that of Frederick Douglass, who secretly learned to read and write after he learned that his education was forbidden. Douglass recalled his master's words that, if you learn him now to read, he'll want to know how to write. And this being accomplished, he'll be running away with himself. Embodied in that stolen literacy of enslaved people is the countervailing tradition that I call fugitive pedagogy in my book. It's a legacy that continued to show itself after the Civil War when black education continued to be violently suppressed even after it was technically legal in the southern states. Between 1866 and 1876, more than 600 black schools were burned down in the South which explains why black people continue to pursue critical parts of their education subversively. Gazette How influential is Whitson's book, The Miseducation of the Negro, in the History of Black Education? Givens The Miseducation of the Negro continues to be extremely relevant. It came out in 1933, and it was a critique of American schooling and the distortions of black life and black humanity that existed in the established orders of knowledge. Woodson argued that such curricular violence was intimately related to the violence that black people experienced in the physical world. In that book, he writes, there would be no lynching if it did not start in the schoolroom. But there was a bit of controversy around the book because Woodson was also criticizing some of his peers, contemporary black scholars and leaders for not taking a strong stance around what he saw as a central conflict in education, the condemnation of black life in school curriculum and ideology. But the book was widely read and extremely influential, especially when we look to the emergence of black studies and African-American studies in the late 1960s. An inaugural class in San Francisco State University Black Studies Department, the first in the country, was called The Miseducation of the Negro. Many of the arguments in the book reflect core tenets of African American studies and the countervailing educational tradition that we can trace through black people who are trying to learn to read and write against the dominant scripts of knowledge, an order of knowledge that said they were destined to be slaves, that they lacked reason, and then that they had no history or culture worthy of respect. Gazette. How did Negro History Week become Black History Month? Givens. Watson created Negro History Week in 1926 as an expansion of a set of practices that black teachers had already been doing even before 1926. We have historical examples of black teachers celebrating the birthdays of various black figures, whether it be Frederick Douglass or Phyllis Wheatley, or the holidays commemorating Christmas addicts before Negro History Week. Black teachers had long developed rituals and commemorative practices in black schools to cultivate a learning culture that affirmed black students' identities. It took on a new significance when Whitson offered the institutional structure of his association where there were materials that could be created and disseminated across black schools. But from the very first year, he reminded teachers that Negro History Week was the week not just to learn about black history, but the week to come together and celebrate what they had learned about black life and culture in the past year. The expansion to a month took place in 1976 in the post-civil rights era and after the establishment of black studies in the American Academy. Gazette. In a recent article, you said that anti-racist teaching is not new and that black educators such as Woodson and others have long been practicing it. Can you explain? Gibbons. The tradition of what some might call anti-racist teaching today is something that black teachers had to engage in because it was a matter of life and death. It's important that we not lose sight of this very rich and long legacy of black teachers, where they continued to organize and resist, even as they found themselves in these deeply violent structures of education. In Teaching to Transgress, Bell Hooks said that, for black people, teaching, educating, was fundamentally political because it was rooted in anti-racist struggle. As early as the 1860s, there were black teachers like Charlotte Fortin, capital F-O-R-T-E-N, a young black woman from an abolitionist family in Philadelphia who raised questions about the scripts of knowledge being offered to black students. Fortin taught recently emancipated black children on the South Carolina Sea Islands. In a letter, she wrote that in addition to teaching students from the books and materials provided to her, she found it important to teach about the ex-slave Toussaint Louverture who led the Haitian Revolution and freed Haiti from French colonial rule and slavery in 1804. She insisted that they should know what someone of their own color had done for his race. My work in this area began when I encountered textbooks written by Woodson in the 1920s such as The Negro in Our History, African heroes and heroines, Negro makers of history, and others that highlighted the rich history and achievements of black people, both of which were ignored or misrepresented in mainstream American textbooks. But there were textbooks written by black teachers before Woodson. In 1890, Edward A. Johnson, a formerly enslaved man, wrote A School History of the Negro Race in America from 1619 to 1890, while he was a principal of a black school in North Carolina. James W.C. Pennington, an escaped slave who went on to teach at a school for black children in Newton, Long Island, wrote a textbook of the origin and history, etc., of the colored people in 1841. I think it's important that we be clear about this long history of black educators uplifting black students and helping them imagine a world they had yet to exist, but one that they could strive for. Gazette, what parallels did you find between your teachers growing up in Compton, California, and the black educators from the 19th century? Givens, I was blessed to have black teachers from the time I was in preschool until I graduated from high school. My first teacher was a black woman who was born in Grenada, Mississippi, and she asked us preschool students to memorize excerpts from speeches by important black figures and she taught us the words to lift every voice and sing, the Black Anthem. In high school, my AP literature teacher held 24-hour reading marathons at her home every winter break, and past and current students came to read a book together. My teachers, like many Black teachers, understood that our education was about more than individual success or social mobility. It was framed as a collective endeavor. Many of my teachers came from schools in the Jim Crow South, and they built on practices they understood to be good and necessary to provide black students with a meaningful education. When I was writing the book, I couldn't help but realize the resonance between what I experienced as a student and what I was seeing in the historical record. Gazette. What lessons can be learned from this long tradition of black educators challenging the system? Givens. One very important lesson is that teachers have historically and likely will continue to play an important role in any efforts towards meaningful social transformation. We can't fully understand the victories and the promise of the civil rights movement and the civil rights struggle without thinking about the role of those teachers who often operated in the shadows. These teachers were central to helping build and sustain that movement by cultivating the dreams of generations of black people, that we see expressed through so many of the individual figures we celebrate during Black History Month. Those folks are part of a continuum of consciousness that can be tied directly back to the pedagogical visions of black people striving for a meaningful, liberatory education in the 19th century. One of the biggest lessons that I hope folks take away from this book is that we can't undervalue the significance and the impact teachers can and do have in the lives of students. Teachers will be vital for any vision of justice we might try to rebuild, create, and enact in the world around us. There are three pictures that accompany this article. Two of them are of Carter G. Woodson, and the other is of Jarvis Givens. The first is a formal picture of Carter G. Woodson in a dark suit, a striped tie. I can tell that his hairline is receding and his hair is graying. It simply says, Carter G. Woodson, 1947, Source Library of Congress. The next photograph is of the author, Jarvis R. Givens. He's wearing a long sleeve jean shirt, has on a watch with a leather strap, has a little goatee, lots of books in the background and some potted plants, and he's smiling while posing for the camera. The caption reads, one of the biggest lessons that I hope folks take away from this book is that we can't undervalue the significance and the impact teachers can and do have in the lives of students, said Jarvis R. Gibbons, author of Fugitive Pedagogy, Carter G. Woodson and the Art of Black Teaching. And the final picture is that second photograph of Carter G. Woodson. He's outside underneath a tree, holding a pen and some papers in his right hand and looking into the camera. He's wearing a suit. The caption reads, A Portrait of Carter G. Woodson in the 1923 edition of West Virginia Collegiate Institute El Ojo Yearbook, capital E-L, capital O-J-O. That was the reading of the article celebrating the founder of Black History Month. In a new book, Education School's Jarvis Givens tracks influence of pioneering scholar who fought to preserve record of African-American life. It was written by Liz Minio. It was published February first, 2022, and was found at the Harvard Gazette's news.harvard.edu website. The next reading is an opinion piece that was published in the Kansas City Star on January 13, 2023. The title is Reparations Time Has Come to Kansas City by Vernon Percy Howard, Jr., Few people reflect that for two centuries the Negro was enslaved and robbed of any wages. Potential accrued wealth which would have been a legacy of his descendants. Martin Luther King Jr., 1965. Sometimes it is true that our generation need not say or listen to something new, but only hear the ancient truths that ring so clear from morally endowed, clear-eyed luminaries positively burdened and disturbed by our collective failures as a nation and most assuredly, as a city, in living out our collective moral obligation to create a just society and culture. This nation's founders called us to achieve their aim, which they were willing to die for, to form a more perfect union. As we approach the celebration of the life of a person who so profoundly shaped that effort, we see together with collective vision that we are much further from perfection than we should be. The quote above is Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1965 call for reparations. Though that term is not mentioned in his vernacular, it is the core and heart of the outcome he hoped for and the envision for America, including its urban areas now burgeoning with severe racial inequities and imploding from within as a result. The theme of our 2023 Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Greater Kansas City gathering was Reparations for Black Kansas Citians. The grassroots movement being forged through the Casey Reparations Coalition is dedicated to educating and mobilizing Kansas Citians toward truly making the repair of black life here in our supposedly livable town a political and policy reality. Ordinance 220966, under review by the Kansas City Council, is designed to make amends for Kansas City's participation in the sanctioning of the enslavement of black people, and any historical enforcement of segregation and accompanying discriminatory practices against black residents of Kansas City, encouraging others to join the city in this effort in establishing a commission within 90 days to be known as the Mayor's Commission on Reparations. Too many black people are living in conditions of misery and pain, lacking the benefit of safety from violence, mired in unhealthy living conditions, void of quality and equitable health care, so Sojourning to schools without high performance standards, facing poverty's daily desperation for the basic necessities of life, suffering from the trauma and grief of lives taken and destroyed, separated and denied from even the most minimal and basic of human rights, souls broken to a dreamless state. At the same time, we watch the wealth and wellness of the Kansas City elite sup and saturate upon and end the good things of life. The year of 1619 saw the first Africans brought to these shores under chattel slavery, and we, their descendants, live the social realities of that legacy of oppression. As a nation and city, we're far from perfect, still so far after all this time. We rise to take responsibility for our condition. However, we do so resisting the myth that we can or should raise ourselves by our own bootstraps alone. We did not arrive at this crisis on our own. Our research concludes that our condition involved decades of intentionally uneven economic development perpetrated by white banks, lending institutions, and real estate companies. Our condition involved a decades-long denial of equal access to quality jobs and equitable living wages. America's hands are bloody from more than two centuries of unpaid labor, impeding our ability to create, grow, and transfer wealth to our heirs. Our condition involved the massive infiltration and trading of illegal weapons and drugs into urban communities, leading to incomparable criminal activity and incarceration rates, and resulting in social and emotional trauma that no one knows like we do. The individuals and institutions of the ruling class who hold the reins of economic and social power so tightly and mercilessly have equal share in the responsibility to create that more perfect union. All of Kansas City must join this movement for reparations and be part of the solution towards healing and justice for black people who suffer from the historic ravages of slavery and discrimination. The Reverend Vernon Percy Howard Jr. is president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference of Greater Kansas City. That was the reading of the article, Reparations Time Has Come to Kansas City. It was published January 13, 2023, in the Kansas City Star newspaper. The next reading on today's African American Hour is from the Associated Press and its AP.com website. The title is On King's Holiday, Daughter Calls for Bold Action Over Words. It was written by Bill Barrow and was published January 16, 2023. America has honored Martin Luther King Jr. with a federal holiday for nearly four decades, yet still hasn't fully embraced and acted on the lessons from the slain civil rights leader, his youngest daughter said Monday. The Reverend Bernice King, who leads the King Center in Atlanta, said leaders, especially politicians, too often cheapen her father's legacy into a comfortable and convenient king offering easy platitudes. We love to quote King in and around the holiday, but then we refuse to live King 365 days of the year, she declared in the commemorative service at Ebenezer Baptist Church where her father once preached. The service, organized by the center and held at Ebenezer annually, headlined the observances of the 38th federal King holiday. King, gunned down in Memphis in 1968 as he advocated for better pay and working conditions for the city's sanitation workers, would have celebrated his 94th birthday Sunday. Her voice rising and falling in cadences similar to her father's, Bernice King bemoaned institutional and individual racism, economic and health care inequities, police violence, a militarized international order, hardline immigration structures, and the climate crisis. She said she's exhausted, exasperated, and frankly disappointed to hear her father's words about justice quoted so extensively alongside so little progress addressing society's gravest problems. He was God's prophet sent to this nation and even the world to guide us and forewarn us. A prophetic word calls for an inconvenience because it challenges us to change our hearts, our minds, and our behavior, Bernice King said. Dr. King, the inconvenient king, put some demands on us to change our ways. President Joe Biden addressed an MLK breakfast hosted in Washington by the Reverend Al Sharpton's National Action Network. Sharpton got his start as a civil rights organizer in his teens as youth director of an anti-poverty project in King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference. This is a time for choosing, Biden said, repeating themes from a speech he delivered Sunday at Ebenezer at the invitation of Senator Raphael Warnock, the senior pastor at Ebenezer who recently won re-election to a full term as Georgia's first black U.S. senator. Will we choose democracy over autocracy or community over chaos? Love over hate, Biden asked Monday. These are the questions of our time that I ran for president to try to help answer. Dr. King's life and legacy, in my view, shows the way forward. Elsewhere in Washington, Martin Luther King III attended a wreath-laying ceremony at the National Memorial to his father, and Vice President Kamala Harris, the first woman and person of color to hold the office, spoke to volunteers at a day-of-service project at George Washington University. Other commemorations echoed Bernice King's reminder in Biden's allusions that the beloved community, Martin Luther King's descriptor for a world in which all people are free from fear, discrimination, hunger, and violence— remains elusive. In Boston, Mayor Michelle Wu talked about advancing truth in an area of hyperpartisanship and misinformation. We're battling not just two sides or left or right and a gradient in between that have to somehow come to compromise, but a growing movement of hate, abuse, extremism, and white supremacy fueled by misinformation, fueled by conspiracy theories that are taking root at every level, she said. Maine's first black house speaker urged residents Monday to honor King's memory by joining in acts of service. His unshakable faith, powerful nonviolent activism, and his vision for peace and justice in our world altered the course of history, Rachel Talbot Ross said in a statement. Talbot Ross is also the daughter of Maine's first black lawmaker and a former president of the Portland NAACP. We must follow his example of leading with light and love and recommit ourselves to building a more compassionate, just and equal community, she added. At Ebenezer, Warnock, who has led the congregation for 17 years, held his predecessor's role in securing ballot access for black Americans. But, like Bernice King, the senator warned against a reductive understanding of King. Don't just call him a civil rights leader. He was a faith leader, Warnock said. Faith was the foundation upon which he did everything he did. You don't face down dogs and water hoses because you read Nischke or Niebuhr. You gotta tap into that thing, that God he said he met anew in Montgomery when someone threatened to bomb his house and kill his wife and his new child. King, Warnock said, left the comfort of a filter that made the whole world his parish, turning faith into the creative weapon of love and nonviolence. While echoing Bernice King's call for bolder public policy, Warnock noted some progress in his lifetime. As he's done through two Senate campaigns, Warnock noted that he was born a year after King's assassination when both of Georgia's senators were staunch segregationists, including one Warnock described as loving the Negro as long as he was in his place at the back door. But Warnock said, because of what Dr. King and because of what you did, I now sit in his seat. That was a reading of the article On King's Holiday, Daughter Calls for Bold Action Over Words. It was written by Bill Barrow, published January 16, 2023, and appeared at the Associated Press's ap.com website. The next reading on today's African American Hour is a book review from the January 8, 2023 edition of the New York Times. The title of the article is Two Days of Terror in Washington, D.C. The Forgotten Story of How an Armed Group Held Dozens of People Hostage in 1977 by Jonathan Mailer. It is a review of the book American Caliph, The True Story of a Muslim Mystic, a Hollywood Epic in the 1977 Siege of Washington, D.C. by Shahan Mufti, capital S-H-A-H-A-N, capital M-U-F-T-I. The 1970s were boom years for hostage-taking terrorists who discovered that in the modern media age there was no better way to draw the world's attention to themselves and their cause than to publicly toy with the lives of innocent people. Two attacks in particular stood out. The assault by Palestinian militants on the Israeli compound at the 1972 Olympics in Munich and the seizure of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran by Iranian revolutionaries in 1979 but sandwiched between them was an equally brazen terrorist siege on American soil, which has received comparatively little historical attention. In March 1977, heavily armed members of a Muslim group called the Hanafis stormed three buildings in Washington, D.C., the headquarters of B'nai B'rith International, the Islamic Center of Washington, and the district seat of local government, and took dozens of hostages holding them for nearly two days. The event is dream fodder for a non-fiction book and not only because of the drama of the siege. The story behind it is fascinating, wrapping in the history of Islam in America, Middle Eastern politics, the Black Power Movement, a would-be Hollywood blockbuster, and a cast of outsized characters including Malcolm X and a young Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. At least one of the hostages published a personal account of the terrifying experience, but Shahan Mufti, the chair of the Journalism Department at the University of Richmond in Virginia, is the first author to dive deep into the historical record of the siege and the surrounding events. His book, American Caliph, is an ambitious and commendable effort that falls a bit short of the subject matter's tantalizing potential, a solid journalistic account that might have been elevated into an enduring work of narrative nonfiction. At its center is the leader of the siege, Hamas Abdul Khalis a convert to Islam whose given name was Ernest McGee. Born and raised in Gary, Indiana, Kelis came from a family of strict Seventh-day Adventists and was one of a handful of black students at Purdue University in the early 1940s before leaving college to join the Army during World War II. He was discharged in 1944, a few months before his battalion's deployment, after being given a diagnosis of schizophrenia. It's not clear whether he was really mentally ill or had simply fooled the military's medical professionals to avoid combat, a question that would of course loom large a few decades later when he held the lives of nearly 150 people in his hands. Either way, Khalees now set out to make his mark on the world. He had dreams of greatness, or maybe there were delusions of grandeur, Mufti writes. Over the years that followed, Khalees, an accomplished drummer, would tour Europe with a black jazz orchestra, graduate from the City College of New York, get married, and start a family. He would also discover Islam, joining the Nation of Islam's Temple in Harlem. It's not surprising that Khalees found his way to Islam at this moment. He was a spiritual searcher, having already turned his back on his parents' Seventh-day Adventist faith to become a Catholic. But maybe more to the point, Islam was becoming the religion of choice for the emerging black power movement, which sought to break free of America's Christian hegemony and align itself with what it perceived to be kindred oppressed spirits like the Palestinians. Khalil's years at the Nation of Islam set in motion the chain of events leading to the 1977 siege. After rising swiftly through the organization's ranks, moving to Chicago and growing close to its leader Elijah Muhammad, He quarreled with another high-ranking member and left the group, convinced that it was deeply corrupt. Back in New York, Khalees discovered a new, more fundamentalist branch of Islam, the Hanafi movement, whose leader only stoked Khalees' anger and bitterness toward the nation of Islam, persuading him that it was the product of a Zionist plot. In 1967, Khalis became the Hanafi's leader. The responsibility to spread the true faith of Islam to all America rested on his shoulders, Mufti writes. This necessarily meant supplanting the powerful nation. Khalees recruited the 21-year-old basketball star Luau Sindor, renaming him Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as a celebrity counterpoint to Muhammad Ali, who was closely associated with the nation. He soon upped the ante sending letters to the ministers of all 57 Nation of Islam temples across the country, informing them that their leader was a lying deceiver. The nation responded to the perceived threat with an almost unspeakable act of violence, sending hitmen to storm Khalees' home and brutally murder numerous members of his family, including his nine-day-old baby. Four years later, Khalees started his siege. By that point, he had become a deranged anti-Semite animated by a swirl of emotional forces. The trauma of the attack on his family and the halting effort to bring its perpetrators to justice, but also a forthcoming biopic of the Muslim prophet Muhammad that he viewed as blasphemous desecration. In exchange for the release of the hostages, he demanded that those responsible for the massacre of his family be delivered to the offices of Benay Brith that he and his men had occupied and he wanted the film pulled from theaters before its premiere. It's a story with endless narrative possibilities. Mufti aptly assembles all the pieces and deftly covers the relevant history, but he leans only partway into the epic messy sprawl before him. I kept wanting him to luxuriate in his wild saga and take a more novelistic approach to his rich material. He might, for instance, have expanded his brief biographical sketches of some of the book's peripheral figures into fuller portraits and dwell more searchingly on the complicated, beguiling Khalees. Mufti answers all the journalistic questions. No small job. But he might have pondered some other ones, too, in order to give American Caliph a deeper resonance. What drew him to the story to begin with? What does it have to tell us about race, religious fundamentalism, and our country's fraught relationship with Islam. Why is it more than just a forgotten chapter in modern American history? Mufti's TikTok of the Siege, the book's climatic centerpiece, is a tour de force. Using police records, an FBI report, and government wiretaps, he recreates the two days of terror and violence in tense, vivid detail. Once the Hanafis had secured the Benai Brith building, Khalis, who was dressed in black with a scimitar hanging from his belt and a large turban on his head, prepared the hostages for their likely fate. If you have any sense, you will pray to your God and be prepared to die. Over the course of the next 24 hours, he fielded some 100 media requests before agreeing to meet with two police officers and the ambassadors of Egypt, Pakistan, and Iran to negotiate the terms of his surrender. In the end, his claims of holy war notwithstanding, Calise didn't have the stomach for the murder of innocents. He let his hostages go, though not before a young journalist had been killed in the district building and many others had been wounded and forever traumatized. He would spend the rest of his life in prison. It wasn't the last that America would hear from him, though. Two years later, he was back in the media, his dreams of greatness and delusions of grandeur still apparently burning hot. From his prison cell, he urged the leader of Iran, Ayatollah Khomeini, to follow his example and set free the 52 Americans being held in the U.S. Embassy. From the laws of Islam, I know where he is coming from, Khalis told a reporter from the Washington Post, but I also know that nothing can be resolved until those hostages are all released. There are two photographs that go along with this story. One is a portrait of Khalees, He's wearing a black skull cap, has on black rim glasses, and has a black goatee. The caption reads, Hamas abdul Khalis, the leader of the Hanafi movement, speaking at a news conference in Washington, D.C. in 1973. The next picture shows an image of a room full with people. There are telephones all over a big conference table. There are papers all over that table. And is surrounded by groups of people that are sitting and talking and behind them even more folks standing and looking and having conversations. The caption reads, Mayor Walter Washington at an emergency command post during the siege. That was a review of the book, American Caliph: the true story of a Muslim mystic, a Hollywood epic in the 1977 siege of Washington, D.C. by Shahan Mufti. The title of the article was Two Days of Terror in Washington, D.C. The Forgotten Story of How an Armed Group Held Dozens of People Hostage in 1977 by Jonathan Mailer. This appeared in the New York Times and was published January 8, 2023. The next reading on today's African-American Hour comes from the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper and its Chicago.suntimes.com website. The title of the article is Talking MLK Bobblehead Commemorates Civil Rights Icons' I Have a Dream Speech. It was written by Allison Novello and published January 16, 2023 at 5.30 a.m. Central Standard Time. The subtitle to the article reads, The National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum Collaborates with the Estate of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. to Bring His Message to a New Generation. Nearly 60 years ago, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Now the speech can be heard once again through a limited edition collectible art piece, a talking bobblehead. In collaboration with the estate of the civil rights leader, the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum unveiled a Talking King Bobblehead Monday honoring his life and legacy. The museum said the bobblehead is the first of its kind. Dressed in a dark suit, King stands at a podium with multiple microphones. The bobblehead features audio clips from the famous speech delivered during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom on August 28, 1963. Dr. King is one of the most frequently requested when it comes to bobbleheads, said Phil Sklar, co-founder and chief executive of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. We're thrilled to team up with his estate to provide people with the opportunity to honor and celebrate his life with this bobblehead. According to Sklar, capital S-K-L-A-R, the museum worked very closely with the estate for several years to create a bobblehead that can capture King's likeness. The estate, which owns the rights to King's I Have a Dream speech, is careful about approving the use of the speech for commercial use, he said. Understandably so, They're very careful about it, but I think we convinced them that the people want to commemorate him, Sklar said. They see the bobblehead as a way to show admiration for him and as a great educational tool that can pass on the speech to the next generation. The museum said it created 19,630 bobbleheads for sale, a number chosen as a nod to the year the speech was given. And each bobblehead is numbered individually. The bobbleheads, which are expected to ship in April, are $40 each plus a flat rate shipping charge of $8 per order, the museum said. A portion of the proceeds from sales of the bobblehead will be given to the estate, which the organization will then use to support various civil rights groups across the U.S., the museum said. The rest of the proceeds will be used to fund the museum, located at 170 South 1st Street in Milwaukee the King estate declined to comment on the bobblehead. As Chicagoans celebrate King's life across the city, some activists and community members applaud the idea of a talking bobblehead in the civil rights leader's memory. It's so important that we celebrate Dr. King because he's one of the greatest Americans that we've ever had and one of the greatest patriots, said Jimmy Lee Tillman, president of the Martin Luther King Republicans. The words of the speech need to be shared so that the message can carry on. Nick Lopez, a member of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, DEI Council at Marin Catholic High School in Chicago Heights said, A bobblehead is a little different, but I think getting that message of the speech across and reminding people of what King was fighting for is a good way to commemorate him. At the largest gathering for civil rights of its time, King delivered the I Have a Dream speech before about 250,000 people on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I have a dream, King said, that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. The speech is as relevant today as it was then, Sklar said. I think that's why the estate decided to go forward with the bobblehead incorporating several minutes of the speech. The hope is that more people will be encouraged to listen to the full speech and learn more about Dr. King and his life. That was a reading of the article, Talking MLK Bobblehead Commemorates Civil Rights Icons' I Have a Dream speech. It was written by Allison Novello. It was published January 16, 2023 at 5.30 a.m. Central Standard Time and was published by the Chicago Sun-Times newspaper at its chicago.suntimes.com website. That's all for this week. I'm Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour.